Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. R.F. Kwong is a Marshall Scholar, translator and the Hugo Nebula Locus and World Fantasy Award nominated author for the beloved Poppy War trilogy. She is an MPhil in Chinese Studies from Cambridge and an MSc in Contemporary Chinese Studies from Oxford and is now pursuing a PhD in East Asian Languages and Literatures at Yale. Rebecca's new novel, Babel, is published on the 1st of September. Described by Kwong as a thematic response to the secret history and a tonal response to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, it is both an exciting addition and challenge to the genre of the Oxford novel, a riveting story, a reflection on language's power to subjugate and to liberate, and so much more besides. R.F. Kwong, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Mostly Books Meets. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for such a kind introduction. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. So one thing I, in everything I can sort of learn about your life from sort of online, from on on your website and things like that, obviously you've had great success with the Poppy War trilogy. You've got this new book coming out, and your area of study as well is about sort of language, literature. It sounds like this has been a great passion of yours throughout your life. Have you always been a great reader? Were you a great reader as a child? I was, um, and I have a few stories about that. Oh, wonderful. We want to chat about some of the first novels I remember reading. Yes. The first is that my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was very young. And right. The way that I learned English was largely through reading because we mostly spoke Chinese at home, which meant yes. that up through high school, I mispronounced so many words because I learned them through encountering them on the page oh, instead of yes. in spoken communication with other people. So I remember very vividly in fourth grade, my teacher kept correcting me because I said debris, debris. And it seems so obvious to me that it should be debris. And she was like, no, the S yeah. is silent. And this made no sense to me. Um, So I bypassed a lot of the ridiculous pronunciations of the English language by just not knowing about them until I had to be corrected later in life. And I still mix metaphors and pronounce words wrong. But that's the beauty of encountering English through the written text instead of in communication with other people. Yes. Uh, while obviously the circumstances are very different, but I was as a child, particularly very dyslexic and my reading was fine. But yes, for me, the reading, I could see a word and I could go, oh, I, I get what that means. And if I tried to introduce it into speech, I would do the same thing. I would think, well, why is it said like that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Yes. So I can, <laughs> I can sympathize with seeing a word and then pronouncing it, how it makes sense. I suppose that's one of the things about language is it doesn't always make sense. English still baffles me most of the time, to be honest. It's had a big impact on my written prose too, because I'm Mm. such a visual reader and a visual writer. And what I mean by that is when I think about the poetry and the rhythm of the sentence, I'm thinking about literally how words look on the page in relation to each other. But there's this whole other half of writing that I'm only starting to learn more about and incorporate into my practice, which is the rhythm and sound. And it's only recently that I've started reading all of my work out loud and closely paying attention to how it rhymes and how syllables sound next to each other. And there's this 
whole world of poetry out there. And I never liked poetry growing up, but now I'm training myself to appreciate it and think about ways that I can incorporate lessons from poetry into how I write. Because I think a lot of people are very audio readers and mm. I've only mm. recently gotten into audiobooks as well. I used to be completely unable to do them because I, I really prefer taking in stories a whole paragraph at a time. So constantly evolving as a reader and a writer, but it's very exciting new territory for me. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose that's one of the exciting things about being an author is from other authors I've spoken to as well, it seems to always be a moving part of yourself, you know, always develop, it never sort of stays still. So that must be a, a really exciting element of that. And do you, so how, does that mean, have you listened to the audiobook versions of, of the Poppy War series or have you just read it out loud to yourself? So I've never listened to any of the audiobooks in full, in part because they're very long and I just don't have the patience to sit through an entire thing when I already know the ending. But yes. <laughs> I was very curious to understand how this would have translated into it's it's almost like theater or spoken word mm, theater mm. listening it's like listening to a radio production of your own work so emily Luzeller, who narrated the popular trilogy she's fantastic so i found myself scrolling through to some of the most climactic scenes in the novels especially oh, yes. where the dialogue is very intense to see how she'd rendered it and it was so interesting because i did recognize my own words but it took a form that i wasn't familiar with mm. and the characters did seem strange and foreign to me but knowing that a lot of readers encountered characters through that way i i listened more and more to try to understand what emily was bringing to the story and mm. how having it in audio change the way that the story felt. And I'm really excited to listen to the Babel audiobook because that will be a different experience entirely. I'm actually really excited because I convinced them to hire a second narrator to do the footnotes because there's that question of how do you distinguish between the main text and the footnotes when it's an audiobook. But because the narrator of the footnotes in the text is a completely different perspective from the main character of the main text, who's Robin, who's male, we had a British woman come on and do the footnotes because that narrator has a different, she's situated differently in space and time from all the other characters. She has yes. the benefit of hindsight. She understands all this historical context that the rest of them don't. So we have Billy Fulford Brown, who's doing this very cheeky British narration of the footnotes to really emphasize how what a different perspective it is and to jolt the readers a little when her voice kicks in. And I haven't heard any of the Babel audiobook yet, but I'm really, really excited to see how that plays. Yeah, I was just about to say, when you started talking about the audiobook, I thought, oh yes, the footnotes. How do you decide where that comes in? But yeah, having the two, the two different voices, that's a great idea. So something to look forward to on the audiobook then. I think it'll be fun. So growing up, you enjoyed reading. Are there any particular titles that stand out for you in terms of books that had particular effect on you or you just remember sort of particularly loving and holding dear? I can think of two. The first is Animal Farm, which my dad thought would be very exciting and fun to read to me <laughs> when I was six years old. And George Orwell is not exactly writing for children. So I remember being so confused as he was reading this parable about the evils of communism and thinking, oh, these pigs, they're so mean. Why are they being so mean to all yes. the other animals? <laughs> Um, and it, I, I'm not sure how much I understood at the time. It's only when I entered high school and reread Animal Farm that I really understood what was going on. But the book meant a lot to my dad, especially as mm. he's part of the generation 
of Chinese immigrants who left the mainland after 1989, the Tiananmen right. Square massacre. So politically, it's very relevant to things mm. that he's grappling with, the society he left and the society that he finds himself in now. So I think that Orwell, who I encountered very young, taught <laughs> me how you can make arguments with stories and mm. how stories can be more than just something to escape to or a fun way to pass the time but rather a weapon to change society and change people's minds and i'm not entirely sure how much of orwell's arguments resonate with me now I have much more complicated views towards socialism and capitalism yes, yes. as i'm sure everybody does but it, it was still very inspirational in thinking about how a story can be so much more than just mm. a story and the second title that comes to mind is Pride and Prejudice. And that's because when I was young, my dad, I'm not really sure why he did this. I have to ask him. But instead of buying hardcover titles of classics from the bookstore or even taking them out from the library, he thought it would be cheaper to find free text files of them online and oh. print them out on our little printer at home. So. I remember this waterlogged, stapled together edition of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen and reading through it and not having any idea what was going on. But since my father, who was also reading to get better at English, was reading it alongside me, yeah. it really influenced his diction. And even today, he still speaks kind of like Mr. Bennett. He has this very stilted, proper Englishman's diction when he's speaking to us in English. And I think it's so funny and adorable. So. Pride and Prejudice is a very special book between us. Oh, amazing. A great example of how a book that was written hundreds of years ago is still having such an effect on people's lives down to, you know, how someone expresses themselves in a particular language. That's such a, an interesting, shows the influence that fiction can have. You know, one thing we always talk a lot about on the uh, on the podcast is the importance of stories. And as you were saying, you know, with someone like Orwell, how stories are not only things that you can get lost in and enjoy, but can be vehicles for change or for introducing new thoughts to people. So two great examples of that there that, that you have. And going into, um, so those were books that influenced you when you were younger. So were both of those, sorry, before the age of 10 or was Pride and Prejudice a bit later on? I would say around the age of 10, mm. I I was a pretty precocious reader. Yeah, I, mean, I, love how, I love how young you were coming across Animal Farm. I remember the first time I read it, I was, I was older, but it is a, a very effective story and a particularly sort of grim one at, at points. So. Although I, I do really love rereading books I enjoyed mm. as a child, as an adult because there are so many more layers of meaning that open mm. up to me. And especially as a writer, I'm able to appreciate the craft on a different level. Um, most recently, I reread The Lord of the Rings in part oh. because I gave the Tolkien lecture at Oxford. And I wanted to know, I, was, I, I wanted to make sure I was very familiar with yes. the master's work. And um, in part because I, you know, was just looking for something to cheer me up. And I had read the book thoroughly as a child so thoroughly in fact that the only copy we had at home was this very thick volume where they weren't broken up into the three books oh, as okay. they often are and since it was too heavy for my childish hands to hold i ripped it into chunks so that i could conveniently hold them oh. up and read them in bed or in the bathtub but I didn't rip them along the three acts as it might have okay, been logical right. to do. I just ripped them according to which themes I really liked. So 
since I had a big crush on the character Mary, I the the scenes where you see a lot of Mary in the House of Healing and Mary and Eowyn, like I, I have those in like very small pamphlets and they're so um, waterlogged because I read them over and over again. Um but rereading them again as an adult, which was the first time I read Tolkien's work since so over okay, ten yes. years. It's amazing how much those books have for both children and adults, because as a child, you're just along for mm. the story. You're excited. You want to see where they go. You're terrified of the villains. And as an adult, you can really just appreciate the expansiveness mm. of the world building, the magic, the way you really feel transported when you're reading Tolkien's work. And I think it's just such an achievement of craft to write something that both seven-year-olds and 26-year-olds can enjoy because not all books can achieve that. It's a fine line to draw and it, it's certainly yeah, something I wouldn't even know where you would begin with in terms of creating a story that has that many layers to it. And is that is that something you, would you say you aim for that in your own work or would you say you see your work as specifically for a kind of over a certain age? Or do you like the idea that there would be some flexibility there in terms of who might be reading it? I have to admit, I don't think about children and teenagers very much when I'm writing. Um, I like to think that, you know, the the odd teenager might appreciate my work, but I'm not mm. trying to write YA or middle grade novels at Yes. And, you know, certainly when I was reading Babel, one of the wonderful things, th things about it is with its reflection on language and language is used in things like empire and stuff like that, that is so key to the story. It is literally woven into the story. And actually, so I think while you can enjoy just the kind of the drama of the story, this wonderful world, the fantasy elements of it, the kind of messages behind it and the thoughts behind it are, are very crucial to that as well. I mean, I do try mm. to write things that are accessible to readers, no matter how much background knowledge they have about the topics the book is engaging with, because I am an academic and my fatal flaw as a creative is to get so lost in the weeds and topics that are only interesting to me and other people in my cohort. And this oh. is a, has been the source of great disagreement between me and my editors because, for example, when I was writing The Dragon Republic, I wanted to go on and on about the canals mm. in this landlocked city and explain how they have such a powerful nice. military if they're not directly on the ocean or a powerful navy rather and my editor was just like we, we don't care about the history of these canals it's two pages of canal talk you can cut it for pacing really it's fine and I was like no it's really not people are going to come to this text and have questions and I need to answer those questions <laughs> so I have to juggle that impulse with the impulse also to just tell an engaging story that anybody can understand and appreciate. Mm -hmm. So in Babel, there's lots of lectures about etymology. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of philology. It's, it's a deeply academic book. And in many scenes, you're sitting in class with the characters, listening to the lectures, having mm -hmm. those intellectual debates with them. But I wanted to make sure that everything was explained and easily accessible and something that someone who had absolutely no background in linguistics or etymology or philology would still um, be entertained by. And I think that's a good mm. impulse also to bring to teaching, which is my other profession. I hope to graduate from my PhD program and become a professor because I think academic 
speaking and academic writing in particular can become so obsessed and in love with itself that mm. it becomes really hard to understand. There's all this jargon, it gets tangled. And eventually, it, you have to wonder who, who are these academics writing for? Are they just writing for each other's applause? And I think mm. constantly reminding yourself how to educate and inform someone who has no background in your field is a really good thing to be thinking about as a scholar. And, and it's that drive that I think keeps my fiction from becoming so esoteric that it's not commercially attractive at all it yes you don't want to go sort of so niche that yes your your sort of audience slowly slowly gets smaller and smaller but i will certainly say as someone who is you know a linguist sort of languages isn't my area but reading it the footnotes and the explanations of the the intricacies of things like translation the difference between you know one word a language and its supposed example in another language and the intricacies of that were were beautifully done and absolutely fascinating it you know i felt i was learning at the same time as learning about the world of the novel as well which i thought was wonderful and it it did i, I was interested to know if whether with things like the footnotes and the the world building really interested in this quote about the thematic response to the secret history and the tonal response to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, because the use of footnotes in the world building reminded me of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Of course, footnotes in fiction are, you know, they have a, a long history. I'm not saying it's just from that. But uh, was that something that inspired that or, or influenced that at all? Oh, definitely. I think the marketing copy that it's a response and a retort to the secret history and Jonathan Strange Sounds a little aggressive and more aggressive than I intended, especially because I love those books yes. and Babel is not meant as a refutation mm. of their arguments, which I think are fascinating mm. and really well done. I think the way in which it is a response to Jonathan Strange is that, like Susanna Clarke, I am attempting a pastiche of Victorian fiction. Mm. So I did a lot of what I call vocal training when I was preparing to draft Babel. I went back to the classics and wow. read a lot of Dickens. I read Thackeray. I read Austen. And then I read Susanna Clark, who I think is a great example of someone who's taken the tone and rhythm and diction of that era and made it feel modern mm. and fresh while still using those techniques to clearly ground the reader at a specific moment in time. And I also love the way that she used footnotes to make the world mm. even bigger. And with Babel, I wanted to expand the world of 1830s Victorian England even more because I think when we think of Victorian fiction, we think of middle class white British mm. people. And the world was so cosmopolitan. Even then, even your middle class white British people were constantly going on voyages abroad. Mm. They were having afternoon teas with products from China and India and all over the world. And people from all over the world were coming to London as well. So. I hope that Babel is much more colorful mm. and diverse and more cosmopolitan than a lot of the fiction in Victorian canon. So I am not trying to refute earlier works, but just to expand mm. the world a little bit more to include those other voices. That's obvious in the book as well, because I could see, you know, those influences and the love of books like The Secret History and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, particularly with the sort of campus element of The Secret History. Because it, it does seem to be, it's not an area I'm hugely sort of knowledgeable on, but when I started bookselling, I was bookselling in the city of Oxford. I was at Blackwell's and 
I learned about this, you know, basically they had a whole section on the Oxford novel, which is a, an interesting genre because sometimes it would feel like in a book setting sense, we have categories that are useful for us because we can go, oh, that book goes over there. You know, it, it's just a kind of a way to organize books and guide people through the shop. But people do love talking about Oxford in fiction. It comes up in lots of, you know, different ways. Babel does feel like a really sort of exciting addition to this and one that explores that in different ways. I was just interested to know, was that a, did you go in thinking I want to do a sort of an Oxford novel or did the Oxford element sort of come in later? Or yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know. Oh, I was very much aware of the genre of the Oxford novel. Um, I think that almost every fantasy writer who has spent time at Oxford ends up writing their version of an Oxford novel. You can see so much of Oxford in Tolkien's Shire. Philip Pullman mm, obviously mm. has Oxford in his novels. Samantha Shannon has a fantastical version of Oxford in the Bone Season series. And I think it's because Oxford is just mm. such a magical place. And it's funny because I've only been away from Oxford for a little over a year at this point, And mm. I already have such intense nostalgia for it. Because when I'm away from Oxford, all I think about are the beautiful parts. I think of the cobblestones, the dreaming spires, Court Meadow, the river. I think about Oxford in the spring when everyone's drinking pins. I think about the libraries. I think about the scones. Oxford really does feel like a place out of time and out of history. And that's not the reality. It's a beautiful illusion. But when, when mm. I was at Oxford for... For the greater part of the time that I was at Oxford, I was miserable. I didn't like my classes. I didn't like my neighbors. And I felt like this illusion had been punctured. Um, but it, it just speaks to the power of the magic of the place that the moment I stepped away from it, all I could think about was its beauty. So I wanted mm. to write something that interrogated what the bones and foundations are of that beautiful place to interrogate Oxford's relationship to slavery and colonialism. And I think that is where the dark and dark academia should be coming mm -hmm. from. I'm very frustrated with dark academia novels that are that just unassumingly accept the idea of the university as this beautiful elite place without asking questions about that exclusivity or the origins and the, mm. the sources of funding of that beautiful place. So I always knew mm. I wanted to do an Oxford novel and I always knew I wanted to do a dark academia novel that specifically targeted, targeted the imperial racist mm. and classist foundations of Oxford then and of Oxford now. Yes. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. So I suppose in my mind, I was wondering whether, because the two, you know, are linked in many ways, whether the sort of the colonial aspect had come first, and then Oxford sort of came into that, or whether it started with Oxford, and then ergo, you then explore the sort of the colonial history of the university. And, and... Well, I think they go hand in hand. I think Oxford is the mm -hmm. shining example of the colonial illusion. It's it's a place of knowledge and civilization. Everyone is so cultured and everything is beautiful. And there are beautiful things about Oxford, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of skeletons in the closet and we should talk yes, about yeah. them. And uh, sorry, sorry, because I could get distracted, but we'll go back to, um, we'll go back to Abel later on. Um, so you were a great reader when you were, when you were younger. And uh, what I'm interested in is bringing it forward to today. Um, are there sort of any books that you've read in the last sort of couple of months that have really sort of stood out for you? 
a last book that you've you've really enjoyed? I have three that I'm thinking about right now. The first is Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which just came out. I think it was a big bookseller favorite. It's about two um, lifelong friends who start designing video games together. And it's it reminds me of, um, I hope I'm getting the title right, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is about two young men who start writing comic books together and become comic tycoons. And it's a fictionalized version, I guess, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's lives. Um, And Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow reminds me of that, but it's about the video game industry. And I'm only halfway through, but I'm really riveted. And I love especially how it's it's a commentary on um, the tension between loving something creatively and making something just for yourself and then the marketing aspect of it and thinking about how to make a commercial, how to sell it to many, many people, which is obviously a tension that authors have to deal with as well. Um, And I'm not finished, but I think it will be one of my favorite books of the year. The second book I'm thinking about a lot right now is Vladimir Nabokov's Pale Fire, um, which Mm. I have a funny story about why I didn't read it until recently. And it's because my fiance's high school girlfriend had said that it was her favorite book back in high school. So for years and years, (laughs) I thought, well, I'm not reading that book because if it's my favorite book, then I'll just be copying her, which is a very bad reason to stand between me and Vladimir. Um, And it was, it's a good book for me to come to at this point in my career because I have this problem in which I get very bored with genres and types of stories. So once I'd finished writing the Poppy Word trilogy, I decided that's it. I'm not doing epic fantasy again. I'm not doing linear storytelling again. I'm not writing in that mode again, or at least not for a very long time. Mm. So I switched things up with Babel. The voice changed entirely. I, I went backwards. So instead of a sleek, brusque, modern fantasy voice i was going for a slower more meditative victorian voice Mm -hmm. and now that i've done that kind of formal experimentation i am looking at how to break boundaries even more between what our our understandings of what text can do and what a story is and to think about more ways to manipulate the reader with words and syntax and storytelling structure Mm -hmm. and nabokov is the master of that there are so many layers of storytelling involved in Pale Fire. It it really gives me a headache sometimes trying to keep it all straight and imagining, you know, how much did he know from the first draft? How deliberate is all of this? How much planning did all of this take? But it's working in a very rhizomatic fashion and it's so cool to me and it, it's, it's inspiring me to think about different formal experimentations I can, or different formal experiments I can make with, the next book, whatever it is. Um, then the third book that I finished recently is Elif Batman's Either Or, which is a sequel to her Pulitzer Prize winning The Idiot. Um, and The Idiot follows a freshman at Harvard. And on the face of it, it sounds like kind of an insufferable bourgeois novel about this privileged <laughs> Harvard freshman just living her life and um, being unlucky in love and being depressed all the time. But the particular humor of Elif Bachman comes from how she bridges 
um, Selen's the main character, Selen's personal troubles with all the theoretical ideas she's encountering for the first time. Selen studies literature and languages. So she's reading texts of existentialism. She's reading Kierkegaard and then Mm -hmm. interpreting how to apply that to her own life in the funniest of ways. And I think as someone who also studies literature and languages, it really... Um, it hit very close to home the ways in which we try to use these grand abstract ideas we're studying to make sense of our own small, petty, messy lives. It's just, it's really <laughs> funny and sweet and adorable. I must say, I do love the whole not reading Pale Fire so as not to, so as not to um, imitate your fiance's high school partner. I think we've all, I think choosing what books to read can be at any given point is such a I don't know a mysterious aspect to people you know people say all the time in the bookshop oh I'm buying this book but I've got books at home that I haven't read yet and I always say I think I use this more as an excuse for when I'm buying books myself as well is a book will tell you when it wants to be read so sometimes it's just nice to have it on the shelf ready to go because one day you'll look at it and go and go now's the time and so recently Pale Fire was, was that for you. Oh, I love that. That's a really nice way to think about it instead of I'm wasting all my money at the bookstore buying books that I really don't have time for. I mean, it feels like the type of thing someone might say to themselves in order to convince themselves that what they're doing is absolutely fine. So it's it's probably my very good way of um, me justifying spending more money on books. As a bookseller, I'm not at a loss for books, but um, they're a wonderful thing to have to have in the home and yes because at pale fire am i right in saying that also experiments with because is that done as a foreword to a book but am i right in saying pale fire is written as if it's a an introduction to a book called pale fire is or is have i got that completely wrong it's a text that operates on a couple of levels the first is a fictional or it's a real poem written supposedly by a fictional character. Okay. And then the next part of it is a character who's, who is an acquaintance of the poet describing their lives together and the circumstances of that poet's death. And then there are footnotes to oh, character okay. B's account of everything else. So it's operating on so many different levels. It spins my head sometimes. It's It can get confusing, but it's very very funny and Mm. it just makes you and I when I'm reading it sometimes my jaw is just hanging open in awe of Nabokov's genius he's so hilarious and he's so clever with the words and Mm. languages I mean this is why Lolita works despite its content Mm. it's just a beautiful book to read every sentence you, it's one of the books that taught me that I should try reading sentences out loud and thinking mm-hmm. about how words sound and, and processing things audially instead of doing everything visually as I had been because they are just really gorgeous sentences. And if you can write a gorgeous book about something like pedophilia, I mean, that, that's really quite an achievement. It's, yeah, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a flex, really, isn't it? If you can do something like that with that subject. And it's interesting as well, because I suppose um, something like Lolita comes up a lot in discussions, you know, books and content and how relate to it. But it's, uh, yes, I suppose it's a good example of writers taking difficult subjects and being able to, to do something with that, which in a different way, again, something like Babel has done, taking these sort of big, quite sort of meaty and very difficult subjects and and putting that in the context of a story, a bit like how you said Animal Farm did earlier on. 
it's a great testament to your work. I hope it's okay to mention it. I don't know if it's meant to be a sort of a, a secret as yet, but actually just the other day we received a proof of Yellowface, which will be your next book coming out next year. Are we allowed to talk about that at all? Or is that, yes, is that we are. a bit of a secret as well? I, don't, I, I, I wasn't sure when it arrived. I was, I was like, oh, wonderful. I hadn't, I hadn't yet heard about this, this coming out. So I wasn't sure if um, I'd be able to mention it on the podcast, but because that feels very different to to Babel. And, you know, you were talking about getting uh, sort of bored of genres. So that feels like a prime example of that. Oh, Yellow Face is in a different voice entirely. Mm. And in writing Yellow Face, I was thinking about the very zippy, breezy tone of gossip rags. And okay. I was also thinking about the way readers feel when we are what's it called doom scrolling on twitter right especially yes. i don't know if you're on twitter but when whenever literary scandals break out and everybody's taking sides and reputations are being torn down and people are launching accusations at each other there is a very intense schadenfreude that comes with watching all of this online drama go down mm. so instead of a deep and meditative and thoroughly researched and um and long epic like Babel was. With Yellowface, I tried to imitate that breezy, zippy tone of, oh, oh my God, this. can you believe this just happened? No way, like what's going to happen now? Yeah. Did you hear about this, etc." So it's not a book that's meant to be read over many sittings and not all of its paragraphs are meant to be savored and poured over. It's supposed to be a zippy afternoon read. You're supposed to sit down and just blow through it all in one sitting because hey. you have to know what happens. You have to know the answer. Um, and I was very deliberately trying to imitate that crass internet prose mm. of, of people who are, you know, the peanut gallery yeah. watching from the sidelines, tossing out accusations, making fun of people because there is such a toxic online literary culture. And mm. it's something I personally don't want to have anything to do with. I right. won't participate in that. I, I hope, you know, I never get wrapped up in any of that nonsense because I think it's a very bad way to talk about books and it's a bad way to talk about other authors and mm. I don't like any of it. Um, but I was trying to imitate the feel and the language of it. And it was a fun one-off experiment, but it did give me a lot of anxiety while I wrote it oh. because to be in that headspace of drama, drama, drama mm. constantly, I don't think it's very good for the soul. Um, it's a bit like having to put your phone down and go for a walk in the park. Um, and I think I'm ready for just more walks in the park. Yes. No more doom scrolling through my phone. No, I used to be on Twitter, so I know exactly what you mean. I actually did leave because I, I don't know, it did it did get too much. I was like, so much is happening all the time. So I left. But one thing actually my partner did show me on Twitter recently was Nabokov responding to he was being given a list of authors and told to respond to them. And he was very scathing about a lot of sort of authors that were contemporary to his time. And it just made me laugh because what you were saying about a sort of a toxic literary culture, Nabokov had no problem with um, with being very scathing about uh, about people, which does make it, I must say, very funny to read. And I feel maybe he was partially sort of living up, I don't know, to a persona when he was doing it. But yes, that, that was something that I, I believe came up on Twitter recently. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, I'll have to go look that up. That sounds so funny. It is because, you know, someone who's that good with words, it's it does mean that when when he's being sort of um a bit a bit bitchy, it is 
it is funny. I'm sure the insults are beautiful. Oh too. yeah, exactly. You, I would almost be thrilled if you know <laughs> if you got an insult that sort of well, <laughs> that well, um, that well worded. So those are sorry. Going back, so yeah, those are books uh, that you've read recently and that you've loved and you've responded well to. I have to ask you a very big question now, and I always feel very guilty. And I'm sure people listening to the podcast have to hear me do this speech all the time because I have to ask you a book that changed your life, which for me. I would personally find a really difficult one to answer because I think there are so many books that I could give that title to. So um, I appreciate that when I ask that, I'm asking for quite a big thing. I struggle a lot with this question. I'd been pondering it before I logged on for this podcast. And I think the reason why I struggled with it is because the books that meant a lot to me at certain periods in my life no longer apply as well to Mm. the person that I am Mm. now. So I think we're all constantly growing and evolving and books are important to us to to train us and teach us to become certain kinds of people. And then we shed those skins and move on. So if you had asked me in middle school, I would have said Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card mm. because it's really the book that taught me how dialogue works. It taught me how impressive world building can be. I think Ender's Game is really baked into my storytelling bones. I remember reading it in the classroom of my eighth grade English teacher and just being amazed because I hadn't read anything else like this. Um, But as I've gotten older, you know, I've moved further and further away from the storytelling tropes that I really liked in Ender's Game. And if you'd asked me this in high school, I would have said Ayn Rand's books because I think Mm. everyone has an embarrassing Ayn Rand period that we all hopefully grow out of and then we graduate to reading some Nietzsche and then we grow up, <laughs> graduate yeah. out of that and become better, more caring and thoughtful and interconnected people. Um, but in high school, I was really trying to figure out my own identity. Mm-hmm. I was trying to develop a sense of confidence and self-worth and Ayn Rand and Nietzsche later in college made me think, yeah, I just, I'm just better than everyone else. And <laughs> fortunately that, Phase did not last very long, and I read a lot of responses to Ayn Rand and Nietzsche, and I'm I'm better now, and I know I'm not better than everyone else. Um, I think so. I'm going to give a bit of a cheaty answer and not answer with one particular book, but a genre of book. Mm-hmm. Um, but after I graduated, well, while I was in college, I met my fiance. Or, or I started dating my fiance. We had actually known each other since high school. Oh. Um, and he does philosophy. And um, he he reads a lot of Plato and Aristotle oh. and Socrates, which was not a subject that I had all that much interest in. Um, but because it is his discipline and we're both PhD students, I end up absorbing a lot of it through osmosis. And it's because of him that I read The Republic and I read oh. the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, and I read the dialogues. And up until the past few years, I'd never really taken philosophy seriously as a way to think about how I'm living my own life. I thought, oh, philosophy is just a boring subject that other people do that has no impact on the real world. But actually, reading Socrates and Plato on life and death and what is good for the soul and what justice is and reading Aristotle I mean, in the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle has a chapter on what good friends are and how many friends one ought Mm. to have and how many friends is too much. (laughs) And he does get a little bit extreme, but it it is really nice to reflect on Mm. 
my own personal sense of ethics and how I comport myself around others and how I can be an ethical agent in dealing with my friends and even in dealing with people I don't like very much. So I'm glad I'm with my philosopher, even if I never plan on becoming a philosopher myself. Oh, okay. Yes, that's interesting. So that, uh, I don't know if, if ancient philosophy would be the right term for that sort of academically, but that's had a recent sort of influence on you through, as you said, the osmosis of, of your partner. Oh, he does plenty of modern stuff as well. He mostly works in the Neo-Kantian tradition. So Kant, Christine Korsgaard, Pam Hieronymi, oh. Kyla Ebel-Stuggan. I'm just rattling off scholars that nobody outside philosophy should have any business knowing. Um, but when we talk about his work, it's really the classics that resound with me mm. or resonate with me. Unlike you, I'm not doing a PhD myself, but my partner uh, finished his PhD a couple of years ago. And so I do understand the very interesting process that happens where you end up picking up knowledge just through being their partner and, you know, speaking to them. And it, it's a lovely thing, actually, because I know... I know stuff about French literature I never thought I would, particularly bearing in mind that I don't speak French, but it just is interesting, you know, how much you can pick up um, socially. I suppose actually, in some ways, I wonder if that reflects on the power of fiction as well, because we, through characters and what they're doing, we get to sort of learn about the world that they inhabit, their thoughts or, or certain ideas. I wonder if that element of storytelling is to do with sort of how we think socially if that makes sense. Sorry, that's a, a tangent I went off there. Oh, definitely. Although, to be honest, I'm going to go off on another tangent. Although I do read fiction to think about interpersonal relationships and to think through difficult personal troubles that I have either been through or anticipate myself going through. Um, I'm actually thinking more about fiction as a way to relate to place. And I've been traveling a lot this summer, and I found that it made me really happy whenever I was in a new location to start reading a book set in that place, either about the history of it or a fictional novel in which characters are encountering the same streets and coffee shops as I am. Mm. So when I was in um, Scotland, actually, <laughs> I became very interested in Mary, uh, Queen of Scots. So okay. I picked up the biography, Mary, Queen of Scots, which the um, the film starring Margot Robbie oh, yeah. and Saoirse Ronan is based on. And I understand the film takes a lot of liberties and it's not amazing, although I, I did really enjoy it. Mm. Um, but it, it was a lot of fun to read about the rivalry between those two queens mm. and the history of the relationship between Scotland and England while I was literally there. And mm. then I went to Italy later this summer, so I read Mary Beard's SBQR, which is the oh, history yes. of ancient Rome. Um, and that was wonderful because as we were climbing through the Roman forums and looking through the ruins and standing on Palatine Hill, I could tell my fiance all these stories I just read about the, the politicians and the riots mm. and the real life people um, that, that had lived and walked these same grounds that we had. And I think part of the reason why I love Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow very much, so much is because it's it's set in Harvard Square and I live in Harvard Square and even though it's it's off by about a decade um sorry someone's just come back so I'm going to restart that in case the yeah, audio picks okay, that up um it's set in Harvard Square and I live in Harvard Square so even though the timing's off by about a decade I recognize a lot of the same mm -hmm. signs and landmarks and exhibits they're going to and um and just you know, reading her describe the way snow feels in Boston in the mm. winter, it 
it feels like I found home in, in or that I'm looking through my own home through mm. somebody else's lens, which I guess is literally <laughs> what I'm doing by reading this novel. And I guess that ties back to what I'm doing with Oxford and Babel, mm. reinterpreting this place that so many people have passed through. And I just think that's such an incredible way of relating to the same ground. There's mm. there's so many stories that happen within a single space and it opens up all these possibilities and perspectives of mm. what seems like just a, a plain patch of concrete. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think for, you know, for us here at Mostly Books, we're in Abingdon, so just south of Oxford. It is very interesting when people read a book that's set in an area they know, there is an extra sort of affinity with that story because, I don't know, there's a very simple joy in hearing a street name that you know and going, I know that. I don't know. and But also having the atmosphere explained to the place because of course in you know in terms of um the world but in terms of uh the time uh the oxford then is you know is, is very different and i really loved your author's note at the beginning of the book i don't know i just found that a re- like a really wonderful part of it researching oxford at that time and how different you know that was but also appreciating that it is a story with some flexibility there certainly the atmosphere of oxford i feel you really captured it, it rang true to me and the excitement of turning up at Oxford for the first time also felt very real to me that sense of anticipation at the end of the day I do think Oxford is like this magic spell that everybody gets to participate in it's it's really a special place although I had fun writing that off that author's note because I knew people would get really upset <laughs> if I changed some street names or yeah. um, included a coffee shop that didn't actually exist because I would get really upset. So I had to justify and explain all the changes yeah. so that people wouldn't be too bothered while reading. I suppose that it reflects, you know, the great passion people have for the area that, you know, yes, if if something's different, you know, they're like, what? It's different. But the, I think the author's note, you know, is a good good introduction that says you know don't worry I know it's different you know but it's part of the story and as I said yeah that comes out on the 1st of September so for those listening to the podcast today that is out now and how does it feel for you as an author I know the the Poppy War am I right in saying that it was your 20th birthday the day that the Poppy War went to auction between the publishers is that have I got that piece of information correct that is correct that must have been, I mean, such a wonderful thing. But does that, with each new book and with now Babel, does the sense of anticipation, excitement, the feeling, what, what, what's the emotion of that? Or what's the experience of having the book go out into the world? Oh, I still get so excited before every launch. And I think I'm more mm. excited about the launch of Babel than I was for any of the popular books, in part because because my debut came out when I was very young. I've had the very weird, but exciting experience mm. of growing mm. up literally on the page for thousands of people to to read and watch because you can see my storytelling voice mature as I figure out different techniques as I become a better writer as my sense of storytelling and mm. what I want to say crystallizes and sharpens over the trilogy so I in a lot of ways I think of the popular trilogy as my training wheels it's what made me the writer that was capable of writing something like Babel, which I think is better than the popular trilogy in every respect. So it's really exciting to come out with a world, with with a book set in a completely different world that's not a part of that series, that has nothing to do with that series, and Mm. to kind of make my new introduction to the world as a writer, as my Mm. grown-up 
mature, educated self. And the response has just been incredible. We're really, really excited. I can't wait to go on tour. Um, and I guess one advantage between I get from this not being a proper debut because I do have previous books mm -hmm. out is that I already have fans and readers from those books and um, they're excited to come out and I am so excited to go and see them of course, because yes. of COVID it's been so long since I got to do in-person events and do signing lines and say hi to readers and it's always my favorite part of being on tour just interacting with people who have lived my story and relate to it in different ways and hearing about how they related to it and their thoughts on it. And yeah, I couldn't be more excited. I think it's a, a real testament to the book and also to your already established fan base is that as a proof copy, so for listeners who, who might not be familiar with sort of the workings of the bookshop, we get advanced reading copies in before publication so we can read a book before it comes out. A proof copy of Babel was gold dust in the UK. I know lots of people who wanted one and you know were so thrilled when they when they got one and that's usually when that happens with a book sort of pre-publication that's typically a very good sign about what's within its pages and I know yes you've got a tour coming up and again I've heard about ticket sales have gone so quickly that tickets have sort of disappeared in quite a short space of time it seems like you have a really wonderful and passionate sort of readership out there which must be just such a wonderful feeling. I'm really grateful for it. And mm. yeah, it's just, it's such a blessing. And it's a blessing, especially to be able to come in person to the UK and chat with fans again. Absolutely. And uh, I'm sure it's something you're very much looking forward to. I think that has unfortunately brought us to the end of our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us at Mostly Books Meets. As I said, uh, Babel will be available in store and on our website or at your local independent bookshop as well. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you for a very fun conversation. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because it helps people find us.